We are in the midst of a study in a book called First and Second Samuel. In the Bible, there are these two little books called First Samuel and Second Samuel, but when they were originally written, they were just one book. And so I repeatedly call them the book of First and Second Samuel. But anyway, we're studying right now the section that we call First Samuel, and we're walking through it to kind of see this overall pursuit. What you find throughout the Bible, and you find it in your life and in my life, is that every one of us is looking for something. We're all on on the pursuit of something. But the cool thing about Samuel, these books, is that they give us a little behind-the-scenes look at someone else who is on the pursuit. And that other person is God himself. That even though we are seeking all kinds of things, we've seen Saul was seeking for kind of recognition as the king. We saw that Hannah was seeking for God to give her a son. We saw that Samuel was seeking to just hear what God had to say and say it to other people too. And so everybody in this story has been seeking for something, but behind the scenes, God has been seeking someone too. And we found out this passage, the first week that we studied this, uh, the, the key passage of these two books really, I think, is 1 Samuel 13, 14. I'll show it to you one more time. Here it is on the screen. 1 Samuel 13, 14. Samuel is talking to Saul, Saul, the guy who was king at the time. And he says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. And this passage tells us that God was seeking someone. In particular, God was seeking someone who would be after God's own heart. And last week we met this guy. His name is David. And so last week we tried to understand what does it mean for this after God's own heart kind of thing. What does that really mean? And I gave you two basic definitions, two basic understandings. That being after God's heart means that you have the same values that God has. Your heart is in relative alignment with God's heart. So you are after his heart, meaning that you share the same values that he has. You are in alignment with God's heart. But it also means something else. It means that you are a person who is pursuing God's heart. You are after it. You are going after it. And so David is one who is both. He is a person that when God looked at David, he saw in David a heart that had a lot of alignment with God's own. But secondarily, God also knew that David was a person who was pursuing God, longing for God. And see, that's really the thing that's on God's heart the most. He wants people who want him because he wants relationship. You don't want to fall in love with someone who doesn't fall in love with you. That'd be terrible. We all want reciprocity in our relationships. And so God is pursuing someone who would pursue him. And that's what really this is all about. Well, last week we got introduced to David, and we got introduced to the idea that David was a man after God's own heart, but one aspect of David's heart that we did not see last week is the warrior side. And that's what we come to today. So I want to invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to dig into this idea of David being a warrior. But just so you remember it, before we go any deeper into all this, everything today is based upon this principle that we just saw, based upon this principle that God is seeking someone who would seek him back. 
It's based on this principle that God saw in David an alignment with his own heart. And so the lessons we learn from David reflect on the lessons that we would learn from God. Reflect on what we should receive from God. And so as we read through this story, which is a very famous story, I mean, David and Goliath. Everybody knows David and Goliath. The Wheel of Fortune can use Goliath on its, on its slides because everybody knows David and Goliath. And if you don't know David and Goliath, you know some of it. You at least know that David was the small one and Goliath was the big one. I mean, Goliath is almost synonymous with the word giant. And uh, I think it's time for you to see what the actual text says. Okay, so let's just dig into it. Uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines, remember this is the same group of people that's been opposing the people of Israel this entire book, this entire time. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them. Now, you don't need to know all those names of all those places. It's helpful if you ever get out a map to look them all up and be like, oh, okay, so now I kind of know where they're standing and all that stuff. But the main thing you need to know is that they are not in Philistine territory. They are in Israelite territory. Judah is Israelite territory. The Philistines have invaded the Israelites and now the Israelites are trying to figure out what to do. But at least instead of just doing a whole bunch of like terrorist campaigns, the Philistines have assembled an army, they're lined up, and they're saying, okay, let's do a real rumble. Let's do a real fight. And the Israelites have come out, and they're ready to go. But that's where we pick it up. So here we are, verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. If you look at the footnotes, it says that's about nine feet, nine inches, or about three meters. A cubit in the ancient world was the distance between a man's elbow and his middle finger. That's a cubit. On average, it's about 18 inches. And so if you had six cubits on average, that's about like, you know, over nine feet, something along those lines. But I, I know that you don't know sort of in reality what a nine foot nine-inch man would look like. And so, um, basically, oh, and the span, that's the nine inches right there. That's, this is the span, it's the length of a person's hand. But anyway, I know you don't really know because I don't really know what a nine-foot-tall guy would look like or, or feel like. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, when I was a kid, I went to the Lakers game that they were playing against the Clippers in Southern California, and I don't remember what the name of the place where they were playing was at the time. I don't think it was the forum back then and whatever. But so I went to this place and I remember standing next to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar while my mom got his autograph. Yes, I'm that old. Some of you don't even know the name Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And anyway, I was standing next to him as a child and I'm pretty sure I came up to about his knee and I'm pretty sure I was in junior high. And, uh, and the, the dude was astronomically high. Uh, it was very seriously, what's the weather like up there? Because we're, it felt like, like Toronto needle tower thing, you know, the T, whatever it is, or the Seattle space, it felt like that. 
I was utterly flabbergasted that human beings could be that tall, and he was just over seven. Okay? So have you seen the Harry Potter movies? Hagrid in the Harry Potter movies is supposed to be about eight feet, six inches tall. Uh, in the books, he's taller, but you can't picture the books so well. And when they made it into the movies, they chose to make him about eight feet, six inches tall. And so if you've seen Harry Potter, who's a normal-sized man, Daniel Rath- Ratcliffe, l- maybe a little bit short, and he's standing next to Hagrid, you get a picture of kind of what David might have looked like next to Goliath if Goliath were a whole foot shorter. And so now you kind of get this picture of Goliath being, I mean, he's, he's massive, and he comes out. And he says this thing to the people. He had, well, first, let's just read the description again. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Your footnote tells you that's about 125 pounds. Just his coat of armor was 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. In the footnote, you can see that's like 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So this is just amazing. Here is Goliath. He's from the Philistines. And remember, the Philistines are the people who know how to make iron. We learned that a couple weeks ago. The Philistines have blacksmiths. They can make iron. But here's the problem. Goliath is too big. It takes too much iron to put on this guy. And so he's wearing bronze all over the place because I'm guessing they just can't get enough iron. And so he's got iron on the tip of his bronze spear, on the tip of his spear, but he doesn't have it like all over him. And just the picture of the quantity of metal that must be on this dude is astonishing to me. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Pause there for just a moment. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, who are the people of Israel supposed to be the servants of? God. Okay. So the Philistines clearly don't understand this, which means the Israelites clearly have done a poor job of letting them know that we serve a God in heaven, not this dude over here who's shaking in his boots. But nonetheless, the Philistines are like, you serve Saul, don't you? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul... And all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, um, the fact that Saul is dismayed is really interesting because Goliath has just said, we're going to make this whole battle come down to just two people, me and whoever you pick, okay? And if you remember, earlier in the book of Samuel, a specific phrase was given when the people asked for a king. Do you remember what they asked for when they asked for a king? Let me take you back to chapter 8. I'll put it up here on the screen here so that you can see this. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Literally, the thing they are asking for a king is that he would be the one who could fight their battles. 
And so David picked the tallest man in all of Israel. And he was, I mean, Saul, uh, Samuel, I mean, picked the tallest man on, in all of Israel. Saul was a head taller, we are told, than every other person in Israel. And so Saul is the tallest man. The people specifically asked that he would be a person who would lead them and do their fighting for them. And on top of it, after Saul was picked, God said, I'm going to put my spirit on you in power and you're going to be just like the old guy Samson in the book of the Judges and you can go ahead and take out any Philistine you want. And this is who Saul was supposed to be. Saul was supposed to be the tall man who would fight the battles for the people and have the power of God on him so that he, just like Samson of old, could defeat the Philistines. Like, you see how perfectly this scenario is laid out for Saul. But if you've been paying attention for the last couple of weeks, you know what Saul has been doing. Saul has been pursuing his own aims. Saul has been following his own selfish whims. Saul has just been trying to protect his own reputation. And as a process, God gave up on him and took his spirit away from Saul and said, sorry, I'll find someone else. Everything about this moment was set up for Saul to be an amazing victor. But... Because of who Saul was and how he had responded to these things, God said, nope, we'll get someone else. Gee, I wonder who that other person is going to be. In fact, what you find in the rest of the story, I'm going to skip over some stuff. What happens is we immediately, in the narrative, turn over to a guy named Jesse and his sons who are in the army. Now, if you read chapter 16 with us last week, you already know about Jesse. So why in chapter 17 is the writer introducing us to Jesse? Well, honestly, I really believe this is what's going on. The the story of David and Goliath was written down as a one contained story. And it was so amazing and so popular that it was shared around a lot. And when Samuel decided he was going to put his book together and write all these things together into a book, he said, okay, in, verse, in chapter 16, and he's not thinking in chapters, but I'm just, you know, just go along with this. He's thinking in chapter 16, I want to let people know who David really is before I show him winning this Goliath battle. The Goliath battle, I'm certain, actually happened first. Because at the, end of the, at the end of chapter 17, we find that Saul doesn't know who David is. And so this whole chapter 17 is introducing Jesse's family, introducing the, the sons who were fighting in the war, introducing David. And at the end of the chapter, Saul is like, who is this David kid? But the end of chapter 16, we already know David has been serving Saul for quite some time. Chapter 17 is a flashback. It's a flashback. You've seen it in movies. You've read it in books. It's happening here in the Bible. Chapter 17 is a flashback. It actually happened earlier, but Samuel put it in this spot of the book because he wants to make sure when you read about David, you already know who he is. He wants you to know that God is with him because God being with David makes all the difference in what we find next. Anyway, so the story, um, we're told that 
Jesse's sons are all at war, but David is at home taking care of the sheep. But what Jesse does is he sends David to the war periodically to take food and to bring back messages from the war. And what's fascinating is that Jesse keeps sending David to the places where the Philistines and the Israelites are fighting. But we all know they're not fighting. They're just standing around staring at this guy Goliath. No one's doing any fighting, but David keeps just going back and forth. Finally, one of these days, David shows up and he hears Goliath say what he says. And David's like, wait a minute, this is all we have to do? We just have to send one person over there to fight this big hulking guy? That's it? That's all we have to do? How come no one's done it yet? And of course, everybody is probably thinking, why hasn't Saul stepped up? But, you know, we all know that. Anyway, so David's like, why hasn't anyone done anything about this? In fact, in verse 16, I'll put this up on the screen. In verse 16, we find out that the Philistine, that's Goliath, did that for 40 days. He came forward 40 days every morning and evening and took his stand. And so finally, David shows up on the scene and he hears it. He's there at the right time to hear Goliath say it. And so David goes around and he's like, what's going to be done if, if someone steps up and does this? And everybody says, well, Saul's going to reward him with money and let him marry his daughter and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of rewards. And then David's brother comes up to him and he's embarrassed. He's like, David, you're making a scene here. Would you just keep your mouth shut? And David says, no, I'm volunteering. And so then David goes to Saul to volunteer. We'll pick up the story again there. So um, David is now volunteering. We're in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Your servant is just the general way that you would talk to a king. You'd refer to yourself when you're talking to a king by calling yourself your servant. David says, your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. And what David says next forms one half of the two main passages in this entire chapter that give us insight into what we need to learn. Okay, so pay close attention. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. What David says there is so important for us, so important for us, because David is describing his present relationship to some things in his past. Now, of course, the dude can beat a lion. I mean, that's just cool. Do you know of any other Bible character who was able to kill a lion with his bare hands? Oh, yeah, that Samson guy. See, Saul was supposed to be Samson, but now David is stepping into the limelight, and he's like, no, I've, I've killed a lion. And he doesn't even make the, the Samson joke or reference. He's just like, no, I killed a lion and a bear, for crying out loud. You know, modern-day lions and bears, I'd honestly rather face the lion than the bear, but 
He's gotten both of them. And it's amazing to me that he, he strikes the animal so that he can retrieve the sheep, but he doesn't kill the animal. He gets the sheep first. Then the animal still has enough life to turn on him and attack him. And then David still is able to take it out. Like, the dude is a beast, almost literally. I love David, but pay close attention to what he says. He says something way different than I would say. You see, when I was a a kid, when I was in high school, I played basketball. And um, I had played basketball my entire uh, educational time that I had opportunities. From the time I think I was in third grade all the way through high school, I played on the basketball team. And I was always almost the best. And when I say almost, I mean I was in the top five or six. And uh, as a result, I frequently was on the floor and frequently had opportunities to do things with the basketball while I was on the floor. And I frequently would chicken out. And I frequently would try something and fail. I would shoot the ball and it would miss. There was this one day we were at a, um, a pep rally in high school. And they were doing a three-point competition. And I entered the three-point competition and totally won. Just absolutely nailed my shots. I beat the second place guy by, I don't know, like five or six made baskets, something like that. Completely won this thing. The guy who was second place was a kid who was one of these dudes who would get on the basketball court and he'd like dribble straight to the hoop and like just take these shots, these crazy shots, and they would like go in and stuff. And so he would, you know, score points and whatnot. But I beat him at the three point competition and during this pep rally. And so I, I left that day and I thought to myself, yeah, okay, so here's the deal. I am really a great basketball player. And all those mistakes on the court during games, those are just flukes. Those are other people's fault. Those are just accidents. You know, there's, it's just things happen. But for real, I'm a good basketball player. And because I tend to view myself sort of optimistically, and maybe some of you do that too, I view my past successes as my responsibility. And I view my past failures as just accidents. They're just flukes. They just happened. Well, at least I used to be that kind of person. The older I've gotten, the more I do exactly the opposite. And maybe you can relate to this. I now look at my past failures as my responsibility. And I'm like, oh, I'm just a terrible person. I'm just, such a, I'm just such a bad person when it comes to that thing or this other thing. I'm just such a bad person. I, I, can't, do, I can't do it right. And then I look at my past successes as flukes. It's just accidental that that thing worked out. I'm just so grateful that that thing worked out. I have no idea how that thing worked out, but it worked out. And so all of us, I think we have this relationship with our past that basically says, sometimes I'll look to the past and I'll take credit for the thing for my benefit or for my, you know, feeling bad about myself. Or I'll look back to the past and I'll call it a fluke. It's just a thing that happened. But David didn't do either of those things. Did you see what David did? He said the most amazing thing in the world. I've killed with my own hands lions and bears. And at the end of it, he said, the God who rescued me from the bear will also rescue me from this Philistine. It began with, man, I kill animals. Man, I kill lions. Man, I kill bears. It ended with, God saved me from that lion and that bear. 
You see, the thing that's different about David than about me is that David could look back to his past and he could say, no, every one of those items from my past was one more time God was intervening in my life. One more time God was doing something in my life. One more time God was preparing me for something in my present. All of my past was just God preparing me for something right now. And I think David might say that my past gives me confidence in God. Because my past is the thing that helps me realize God has always been at work. Sometimes he's been teaching me hard lessons. Sometimes he's been giving me glorious victories. But it's always been God doing the work in all of this stuff. And so one of the first qualities you need to know about David is that he looks at himself as a recipient of God's favor. He's like, I'm just going to trust God because look at all this stuff in my past. But dig a little deeper, because I want you to see something else. At the very beginning of David's narrative story there, he says, when a sheep was being threatened, when a lion or bear was taking one of my sheep, actually, were were they David's sheep? No. They were his dad's sheep. He's just a shepherd. What would happen if David went home that afternoon and he's like, Dad, I lost a sheep today. Dad says, what happened? And David's like, well, a lion came. What do you think Jesse the dad is going to say? Jesse the dad is probably going to say, did you get away? (laughs) All right. And David's like, yeah, sure, I got most of them away. I I was able to yell at the sheep. We got most of the sheep away. The lion took one of them, but we got out of that area, and we're not going to go back to that area anymore. Right? No skin off his nose. A lion comes and takes a sheep, no one's blaming you. A bear comes and takes a sheep, no one's blaming you. He's taking a risk for the sheep, for the sheep itself, not for his dad's honor, not for his own honor. He's taking, he's risking his own life for this sheep. And it's amazing to me that David would have such of a confidence in God somehow that he would be willing to sacrifice, or at least to risk sacrifice of himself. And then the picture is that he is risking sacrifice to save this helpless little sheep, and then God sees that and intervenes and steps in. God's like, I see your work of trying to rescue this helpless one, and I will rescue you. See, that's why David says that God has rescued him. Now he can say that confidence in God is something that makes him willing to sacrifice and makes him a willing sacrifice. And if he has to risk his life for the fate of one sheep, he's willing to do that. And if he has to risk his life For the fate of his nation, he's willing to do that. He's willing to be the single sacrifice who stands in front of the nation and says, I will risk my life so that none of you have to. And you get this picture of David that also is hinting something at who God is. That David is a person who would be willing to sacrifice for someone else or something else. And God is a person who says, I'm going to step in and be part of this. David, I'm going to rescue you. You're going to rescue them. I'm going to rescue you because I'm a God who rescues those who rescue. 
because I'm a God who blesses those who bless, because I'm a God who gives to those who give, because I'm a God who wants to be in relationship with someone who wants to be in relationship with me. The relationship with God is the thing that empowers David. But keep going. Verse uh, 38 brings a whole new light to this. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Quick comment here, David fastened on his sword. The word his has to refer to Saul's sword, not David's sword. David doesn't have a sword. We know Saul is the one who has the sword because an earlier chapter told us that in the entire nation of Israel there were only two swords. Saul's sword and his son Jonathan's sword. So as a result, Saul has given to David some armor, has given to David his own sword, has given to David his own tunic. And David says, he tries walking around in them, but he was not used to them. He says, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. When I was a kid and I heard this story, I thought to myself, oh, Saul's a good guy. Saul's trying to give David every advantage. Saul's trying to dress David in his own armor, and David doesn't want the armor. What is David thinking? He's a stupid man. Uh, Saul is trying to help him out. David should receive this help. And if someone ever gave me some armor so that I could go to war, I would definitely take the armor. You know, that's when I was a kid, I was thinking that, and I was thinking Saul was this guy who was generous and trying to give David this armor. But I now see it differently. You see, Saul wanted David to wear his tunic. Why? Saul was the tallest man in Israel. David was a small boy. What would Saul's tunic on David look like? It'd be like David is walking around in a dress. What's the point of that? That makes no sense whatsoever. Unless maybe there was something signifying or special about Saul's tunic so that when a person was standing in the middle of a field and you were standing a field away and you saw something, you might, I don't know, think that that person was the person who owned that tunic. Perhaps the tunic was a particular color. I don't know. This is all just speculating. One thing we do know from ancient history is that when one who was a warrior gave a piece of clothing to another warrior, there was a sort of superstition that the power and spirit of the first warrior could be transferred to the second warrior. And so if the second warrior wore some clothing or armor from a previous warrior, that second warrior would probably end up having to give some credit to the previous warrior for some of the previous warrior's power and authority transferring to the second warrior. I don't know if that's what Saul was thinking. I don't know if Saul was trying to get the people of Israel to think Saul was the one standing out there facing Goliath. I don't know if Saul was trying to get David to use Saul's own sword out there and people would be like, hey, that's an iron sword. Only two people have iron swords and Jonathan's over here. And so um, what the, and by the way, why is what's Saul doing when he's not wearing his tunic? Where is he? Hiding off in some tent? This whole thing makes no sense unless you think that Saul is somehow trying to get his own little edge. But the David part, 
he has the opportunity to wear the tunic of a warrior. He has the opportunity to wear armor. He has the opportunity to go into battle with one of the only iron swords in the, to- the whole nation. And he tosses it aside. And the only thing he takes into battle is the pouch he always wears as a shepherd and a sling and some rocks. Quick clarity. David's sling was not a slingshot. A slingshot is a rubber band type device that you pull back and there's a pouch in here and it holds some projectile and then you let go of the thing and it shoots the projectile forward. What David has was not a slingshot. They did not have stretchy things back then. What they had was slings and a sling was a giant piece of leather that would just be one big piece of leather that at the very bottom, very middle would have a little pouch. And you would put a little rock in that pouch and you would hold the two pieces of leather in your two fingers here and you would swing them around and let go of one of your fingers so that that edge would open up and the rock in the pouch would now be released to fly. That's how they did it. Incidentally, you can go on YouTube, there's a dude who builds his own sling and then trains himself to use it. It is amazing. But anyway, that's what David was using. And there was a wide understanding that shepherds were pretty good at using slings. So anyway, he's got this sling. That's his only weapon. But the thing I want to draw your attention to is that David had the opportunity to go in with weapons and he chose to go in as a shepherd. I'll phrase it this way. If I have confidence in God, that lets me be myself. Now, I'm not saying be myself in the kind of way that we usually say in our society today. We usually say, you know, be yourself means that you don't have to change. There's nothing about you that needs to change. You don't need to grow, just be yourself. You don't need to get better, just be yourself. You don't need to improve, just be yourself. What David is doing, this kind of thing, is not I'm never going to become better. It's I'm going to be the person right now that I already am as I continue to walk through this current situation. You see, the thing about David is that God had done all this work to prepare him for this moment. And the thing about you and me is that we forget God has done all this work and so when we come to our moment, we're like, I don't feel ready for that. Because we haven't been paying attention to the work that God has been doing in our lives to bring us to this moment. But David is in this place where he's like, it doesn't matter what this moment looks like. This moment is a nine foot, nine inch tall giant. My previous moments have been lions and bears. It doesn't matter what this moment looks like. What matters is I can trust that God has prepared me for it. I never knew, David would say, I never knew six years ago that when I was practicing my sling, I'd be coming up against a human giant. Never thought in my mind. I never once tried to practice wearing armor. Never crossed my mind. What God has done to prepare me for this moment is everything I need for this moment if God is with me. And David has that kind of confidence. And so now let's finish the story by seeing what happens when David actually confronts Goliath. All of that stuff was just preparation. Now David is actually there. Verse 41, meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And I just think this trash talk is tight. I just think it is so cool the way David is, is just absolutely just doing all of the trash talk kinds of things to Goliath, where he's like, this is how I'm going to kill you, and this is what I'm going to do with your body, and this is what I'm going to say to all the people around you, and everybody's going to know this is the reason. And it's just like, you know, it's trash talk, and it's amazing, and it's beautiful, but you probably missed the most important parts. Where he started and where he ended. Let me show it to you again. Just those two sentences. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Pause there for a moment. Goliath, you've got weapons. I've got God. Look at the next one. It's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into into our hands. Goliath, Weapons are pointless because God gets to choose. See, David was a guy who defeated lions. David was a guy who'd killed a bear. And you look at David and you're like, wow, David, you're, you're stronger than a lion? You're stronger than a bear? Dude. And David would respond to you and he would say, no, I'm not stronger than a lion. It doesn't even matter if I'm stronger than a lion. The only thing that matters is whether God's stronger than a lion. It is, it, the question of who I am is irrelevant. Is God stronger than a lion? Yeah. Is God able to use me? Only if I let him, so I'm going to let him. The question isn't whether David is stronger than Goliath or whether David's weapons are stronger than Goliath's weapons. The question is whether God is stronger than Goliath, and David has a firm answer on that one. He knows the answer is yes. And so David will say, hey, listen, the battle is the Lord's, and that's why I'm here. This is a fascinating thing. You and I are going to face battles all over in our lives. And I think a lot of times we face this sort of principle in our heart where we're like, why did this battle come to me? Why did this frustration come to me? Why did this challenge come to me? I don't think I'm ready for it. I don't know what to do with it. But we face this question, why did this situation come to me? And David doesn't have that attitude at all. David's attitude is, every situation belongs to God. And I'm going to step into this one. Every situation belongs to God. Every problem belongs to God. Every battle belongs to the Lord. And that's why I'm stepping in to this one right here. No one else is stepping into this Goliath one, but I'm stepping into this one right here. The battle belongs to God, but that's why I've showed up. I'm not taking the place of God. I'm just standing in the confidence of God. And and see what else happens here. If you look just a little bit deeper, David draws a distinction between Goliath and God which then raises the question to me, 
How do I know I'm on the right side? You see, it's one thing to know God is stronger. It's another thing to know that God can use you. But it's an entirely different thing for you to know that you are on God's side for real. Well, don't get me wrong. People throughout centuries have pretended they were on God's side. Some of the worst things in human history have happened from people who thought they were on God's side. Don't ever allow yourself flippantly to think you are on God's side. Just because you think you're on His side doesn't mean you're on His side. But that's why chapter 17 comes after chapter 16 because the writer wants us to know for certain that David was on God's side because David had been anointed because David had the spirit of God on him the the writer wants us to know that David was on God's side and David knew it and so that's why we can move forward with the rest of the story but don't just don't just blindly say whatever Goliath shows up in my life I'm going to do whatever I want to to that person because you have to verify that you're on God's side doing what God would do in that situation And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, but let's just finish up what we got here. Just a little bit more. 48. It says this. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Read these words carefully. Without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and he killed him. And look at this next line. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. This is so amazing. David does not go into battle with a sword, right? He does not go into the battle with a sword. It tells us that time and time again. He had a chance to get a sword. He didn't want the sword. He didn't take the sword. He didn't enter into battle with the sword. He tells the giant, I don't have a sword. You got all swords. I don't have a sword. Then he actually knocks the giant down with his rock. And the narrator tells us, oh, and remember, David didn't have a sword. And so David goes up and he grabs the giant's sword. How strong was David? Dude. How strong is God? He took Goliath's sword, killed Goliath. This is a misunderstanding. The stone probably didn't kill Goliath, just knocked him down. But David ran up there quickly enough before Goliath could wake back up again. And he grabbed his own sword, killed him, and then cut off his head. Now, yes, that's gruesome and all that stuff. But here's the deal. Dude, man, this is serious. David is the kind of warrior that seems unstoppable. He killed a giant with a pebble. We enter into our battles so worried that we are not well equipped for them. And David intentionally goes into battle with none of the normal equipment. And we learn this, that because the battle is the Lord's, he will provide what I need. The sword was already on the field, right? 
It just happened to be that Goliath had it around his waist. David didn't need a sword. There's already a sword out there. A bigger sword, a better sword, stronger sword. Just use that. Got to get it away from the giant first. No big deal. We'll just use that one. This whole story leads us to four evaluative questions. And I want to give these to you by ways of encouragement and also by ways of challenge. The first question is, what are the giants in my circle? In my sphere of influence, in my circle of experience, in my circle of life, what are the giants that I'm facing? Number two, how has God equipped me for this moment? Take all the stuff in your past, all the successes, all the failures, all the things you've learned, all the things you should have learned, all of that stuff, bring it into the present and say, all of that was because God was doing something in me. He was preparing me for something. How has God prepared me? What is the unique aspect of who I am and how God has prepared me that puts me in this moment right now? Third question, am I really on God's side and how would I know that? I'll come back to that in just a bit. And then the last question. What does confidence in God mean right now? We live in a world where everybody is fighting giants because everybody thinks that everybody else is a giant. Everybody thinks that everybody else is their enemy. And we just live in this very mean, contentious, fighting kind of world. And the question for us is, am I fighting the right giants with the right weapons and am I the right person to do the fighting? And here's your answer. It's from the book of Matthew. Matthew. Chapter 25, 26, verse 50 through 40, excuse me, 50 through 54 says this. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. He's in a garden and his friend Judas has come up to him. And Jesus says, go ahead and do what you came for. And when the men, then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus's companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Here's the point. We know from other Gospels, we know from the Gospel of John that it was Peter who drew the sword. We know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus actually picked up the ear and healed the, man, uh, healed the man's ear. But here's the thing. Peter, I'm 100% certain, thought that he was doing the work of God by pulling out a sword and cutting off this man's ear. Peter thought he was doing the work of God by defending Jesus. But the real work of God was Jesus' surrender. Peter thought he was doing the work of God by pulling out a weapon, but the real weapon was Jesus' steps towards sacrifice. Peter thought he was doing God a favor by doing an attack. And Jesus says, no, we're going to be people of sacrifice. See, the real giant in that story isn't the, the people who are coming to take Jesus away. The real giant is sin and death itself, and Jesus was going to conquer that. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion. And as we do, I want to ask that you would take this mindset and approach. That you would say, Jesus, I want to be on your side. All the stuff in my past have 
been preparing me for a giant, but Jesus, I don't know what the giants are that I should really be paying attention to. But Jesus knows the giants. They begin with sin and death itself. And, Jesus, I don't know what weapons I'm supposed to use, but Jesus knows the weapons. They begin with stepping towards sacrifice. And you say, Jesus, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do in this fight. And Jesus says, follow me, because he would sacrifice himself to save others. The parallels between Jesus in the garden and David and Goliath are clear. And David defeated a literal giant by sacrificing himself to the will and power of God. And Jesus defeated the biggest giants of all time by sacrificing himself to the will and power of God. And you and I should join it. When we receive communion today, I want you to say, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for me. Help me be a sacrifice for others as well. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.